speaker. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as uh, the senior pastor here, as well as one of our elders. And uh, we are thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today. I know I had a chance to meet some of you before the service. Uh, if I did not have a chance to meet you earlier, I'd love that opportunity. And so after the service is over with, I'll be out in the foyer. Would love if you swing by, uh, sw swing, I don't know if that's the right word or not. If you swing by and say how to introduce yourself to me, then I would really appreciate that. And then also, as was mentioned on the video, if you'd fill out the, uh, the connection card, if you'd like to do that, then that will give us some information about you so we can get you uh, some more details about what's going on in the life of the church. Um, I wanted to begin this morning uh, by uh, saying, yes, we are uh, going to be looking at prayer this morning, and I'd encourage you, if you don't already have a Bible with you, grab a Bible, uh, whether you brought it with you or it's on your phone or if it's underneath a chair near you, grab a Bible and use that as we move through this text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take the one that is there in your chair home as our gift to you. And obviously, prayer is critical all the time uh, in the life of a believer, in the life of a church, but all the more so right now for our church family. Um, if you're a church member, I'm sure you've heard by now that we are um, going to be voting on a church-wide issue, and that is the question about dissolving potentially one of our uh, staff positions. And, uh, and members, you should have received an email this week. Uh, we're going to be having a Q&A this afternoon at 4 o'clock in room 200 upstairs. Uh, that's definitely for members. If you're not a member, you're welcome to come as well. And we especially would like for those of you that may be struggling with like, hey, I've got questions, I'm not sure why this route, is there another route option available, all of those things, we'd love for you to come be a part of that today at 4 o'clock in room 200. So this morning, we're looking at prayer. We're looking at, at Matthew chapter 6. In, if you came in this morning, you might have picked up, you did come in, but when you came in this morning, you might have picked up a worship guide. And on the back of the worship guide is a place to take notes for the sermon. And you see at the top there, the title of the message this morning is How to Pray. And it comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. We're in the middle of a series on the church, not our church, but the church. And the title of the series is Glory to God Through His Church. And the reality is this, a praying church brings glory to God. A praying church brings glory to God, but to be a praying church, we have to be full of praying people. And so this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to pray, why do we pray, and how do we pray? So my question for you is, how important is prayer to you? My question is, how important is prayer to us as a church family? One thing that we started about a month ago is uh, we, we had this before COVID, and now we're having it again. On, on uh, Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock, we are having prayer time here at the church building, and you're welcome to come and pray with us. But we know that prayer needs to be important to us as a church family. And to be a praying church means that we are seeking the Lord's will. It's impossible for us to do the will of the Father outside of sincerely and persistently seeking His will. A moment ago, Howard talked about how sin in our life prevents us from hearing from God, and that is absolutely true. At the same time, if I'm not praying, and if I'm not studying God's Word, and if I'm not praying while I'm studying God's Word, if I'm not seeking the Holy Spirit's leadership in my life, then I'm not going to hear from Him either. 
All too often we make prayer about a laundry list for God and we, don't, we talk to God and we never listen to him. Guys, we've got to be praying people who not only bring our requests to the Lord, but we also listen to him as he speaks to us. So prayer is absolutely vital. You may be thinking, well, how is it that we are to pray? And thankfully, Jesus gave us a model prayer for us to follow. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it referred to as the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with calling it the Lord's Prayer, but I believe that kind of a better catchphrase for it is the model prayer because it's a model for us to follow, and there's nothing wrong with praying the exact words that are in this prayer, but I don't think Jesus' intention for us was to just memorize this prayer and pray these words, but rather I believe that Jesus gave us an outline, a skeleton, if you will, of the kinds of things that we should be praying for and praying about. And so on your sermon notes, you'll see the text is actually right there. And so we're not going to have main points. We're just going to have phrases. We're going to look at each of the petitions in the model prayer. And then underneath there, you can jot down kind of some things about what it means. And then what is the category, if you will, of what Jesus intends for us to be praying with that. So Matthew chapter 6. We're in the middle of the, the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus shares with his disciples and those listening how to pray. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, reading through verse 13. Jesus says, pray then like this. And even as I read in the SV, I feel like I'm not reading the right words because I memorized this in the King James Version. And so it's going to sound a little bit different than how I memorize it, but it's the same content. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil this morning let's look phrase by phrase petition by petition at what jesus teaches us about prayer You'll notice on your outline, there are six petitions that Jesus shares. The first three carry with it petitions about and specifically to the Lord. It's divine petitions. He says, your kingdom, come. sorry, sorry. He says, our Father in heaven, your name, your kingdom, your will, and then he switches at the end and uses the word us, us, and us. So the first three have to do with divine petitions. The last three have to do with petitions related to human needs and address those needs. So let's look at each one one by one. There on your notes. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I, I want to hit these words and talk about why each one is important. First, notice the first word is our you see, God is not my personal God. I don't have him in my box. I don't have him in, on my leash. I don't have him under my control. Rather, God is the God of the universe, creator of all. He is the God of all people, even if all people don't acknowledge him and experience his grace and his mercy. You see, he is our Father there's nothing wrong with me enjoying a personal relationship with God, but he's not my personal God. He's our God. We are to collectively pray. And so there's plural in all of this, um, this, this passage because it's us praying, not just me individually praying. 
Also see the word father. Why does he address him as our father? We'll notice that if you look at God's word, that father is not a term that up until this point the Jewish people had been used to or accustomed to using about God. It was too personal. They wouldn't use that phrase. And yet here is Jesus. He's praying to his father, and he says that he's our father as well, and we can pray to him as our father because the character trait of God that we see in the fact that he is our father is that he is imminent. I don't know if you know what the word imminent means or not, but imminent imminent basically means that he is knowable, that he is personal, that he is relational. And so in the context of this, he's not just praying to some supreme being, which God is. He's praying intimately to his Father, to our Father. And so God is knowable in the sense that he reveals himself to us as our Father. In our equipping classes, one of the classes we have right now is Experiencing God, and I'm, I'm going through that class as well. And, and in Experiencing God, there are seven realities about God that we study. And the second one says this, that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. And so here is this idea that God is our Father meaning that our relationship with him is real, it's personal, and we can know him. And because he is our father, we can trust him that he's going to provide for us. We sang earlier that he is our good, good father. Beyond the fact that he is our good, good father, he is our perfect father. I acknowledge right here in this place that some of us, it may be hard for us to envision God as our Father because we don't have a good experience with our earthly Father. Some of you had a very tumultuous relationship with your Father, perhaps even abusive. Some of you may not have ever known your Father. He never was in your life. There could be all kinds of strains and difficulties, even with the best of dads. And so what I need us to see is that God is a perfect Father. He never lets us down. He's always caring and loving and always provides for us. And so we can come to the Lord as our Father, knowing that He hears us, He loves us, He cares for us, and He's a perfect Father who provides for us what we need. But then He says, our Father in heaven. Like, why does He bother to say in heaven? Is that just like a geographical thing? Don't forget, God's in heaven. No, it's not that at all. Rather, whenever He identifies that the Father is in heaven, that is a true statement, but it's also pointing to the fact that while God is imminent, He is also transcendent. Transcendent means above, beyond, other, unknowable. And so there is this sense that our Father is knowable, but then there's also the reality that He is sovereign, He is above and beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. And so He is in heaven, meaning that He is above us, beyond us, other than us, He is outside of our comprehension, He is sovereign. And with that, we see that he is powerful. So if our Father is in heaven, that means he desires to give us what we need, and he has more than the capability to give that very thing to us. And so whenever we come to the Lord in prayer, we begin with an acknowledgement that because of who he is, we can know him, and yet at the same time we can't fully know him, but we can continue pursuing him as he's actually pursuing us in a love relationship with us. 
Whenever we understand that God is both imminent and transcendent, that brings us to the second half of this phrase, which says, hallowed be your name. In other words, because of who God is, we are to hallow his name. What does the word hallow mean? Like, when's the last time you used hallow? You're like, uh, is it a part of Halloween? No, not necessarily. But what does it mean to hallow something? To hallow something means to make holy or to respect or to have reverence for. The key, the, 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 the key not the key, but the root word for hallowed is the same root word as holy. So it's saying that our Father, while we can know Him, while He provides for us, the reality is He is not our homie, He's not our best buddy, He's not the big guy in the sky, He's not any of those things. He is to be reverenced, feared, worshipped, glorified. He is worthy of our worship. So the statement is, hallowed be your name. So the question is, okay, do our prayers make him hallowed? Absolutely not. Whether you acknowledge out loud, hallowed be your name, his name is already hallowed. And whenever it says his name is hallowed, it's not the word God is holy. Rather, it's the person, he's not a person like we are, but the person, the being God who is holy. To say his name identifies his very being, his very essence, his character. And so, of course, he's already holy. Of course, he is already glorious. But we're to respond and acknowledge that fact that he is holy and worthy of worship. All too often, we skip this very first line. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whether you use those words or not, our respect and reverence for God is almost out the window whenever it starts with our prayer time. And the reality is we need to begin right here with this thought that I am able to come to the throne room of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf, and yet I'm not worthy to do so. He is above me, beyond me. He is sovereign. He is the creator of this universe. So my kind of main point on this first phrase that you may want to jot down is this. When we pray, we are to revere God and bring him glory in our lives and all over the world. Whenever we pray, we are to revere God and bring him glory in our lives and seek to do that all over the world. So that's the beginning point. The second petition says, your kingdom come. What is the importance of saying your kingdom come? What does it mean to say God's kingdom? God's kingdom is not like a, a, a territory. Like you can't chart it off and go, yep, the U.S., we're God's kingdom. Oh, Israel, it's God's kingdom. Like you can't uh, line out Ethiopia and say and this is God's kingdom. Rather, God's kingdom is where he is in charge and people acknowledge that he is in charge. So his reign and rule, wherever it is realized, while his reign and rule is everywhere, wherever it is realized is where his kingdom is found to be active. And God's kingdom came when Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and was raised three days later. Whenever Jesus finished his work, his kingdom came and was complete. And yet, because we live on a world that's full of sin and sinners, the kingdom is not fully realized quite yet. 
We won't experience God's kingdom entirely until we pass away or this world comes to an end and we are in the presence and the throne room of God. And that's where the kingdom of God will be fully and finally realized and recognized. And yet here on this earth, we are called to ask for his kingdom to come. So to say that we want his kingdom to come means that we want to look out to our world Look out to our society, look out to our country, and instead of being mad or instead of being sad about the reality and the current state of affairs in our country, in our land, and in our society, we move to action to realize that we have a role to see God's kingdom come, even though the world sure is dark around us. So instead of being mad about how his kingdom hasn't come, may we pray that his kingdom would come and may we be an answer or a partial answer to that. That as we pray for his kingdom to come, that we would live differently, asking God to bring his kingdom in the here and now and to use us to pull that off. So what does it mean to reference God's kingdom? God's kingdom, surely that's a spiritual thing, right? Absolutely. God's kingdom, though, is more than just what we would label spiritual. God's kingdom should impact and influence every aspect and capacity of life. We shouldn't segment and say, this is my spiritual life and this is my every other thing of my life. So therefore, God's kingdom should be actualized and realized in our spiritual lives, mental, physical, relational, political, where we serve, how we point others to Jesus, so that everything about my life should reflect the kingdom principles of who God is and how his life, uh, how, how our lives can be impacted by that kingdom. So my question is, are we allowing God's kingdom to come in our own lives, or are we kind of holding back? As I think about the different aspects of God's kingdom, I'm reminded of what Jesus said. Do you remember in the book of Luke, basically the first sermon we see Jesus preach in the book of Luke was when he shows up one day at the synagogue in his hometown. And he walks into Nazareth and he reads the appointed scripture for that day. It's actually from Isaiah. And he talks about how the kingdom has arrived. And as with that, he has come to reach all kinds of people. You may want to jot it down. I'm not going to read the text, but it's found in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And he says that he has come bringing good news and freedom. And who does he come to bring it to? He says the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Now granted, when he uses those phrases, they are in reference to spiritual needs, but it's not only or exclusively those needs. His kingdom has come for all of those people. The problem is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, are called to live as kingdom citizens, but all too often, instead of living as kingdom citizens, we're living as citizens of our own little fiefdom or our own little kingdom. And if we're not careful, instead of seeking that his kingdom would come, I'll seek to make sure my plans come, uh, that my country prospers, that my church and the way we do things prospers, that my influence, my success, my control, my, my, my. But the reality is that Jesus says we're to pray your kingdom come. That's going to go hand in hand with the next phrase we're going to look at in just a second. But the reality is this. You may, may want to summarize this section, your kingdom come, with this. When we pray, we're to pray for God's reign and rule to permeate every aspect of our life. We are to pray, when we pray, 
for God's reign and rule to permeate every aspect of life, and while you're at it, ask him to use you to be a part of the answer. See, it's one thing to look at our society and say, Lord, come, like change people's lives, and then we don't do anything to step out and seek to make a difference. So that's the second petition. The third petition there on your notes is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This goes right at hand in hand with your kingdom come. Because if his kingdom comes, then that means we're experiencing his, his reign and rule in our lives. If we're experiencing his reign and his rule in his, our lives, then we're asking for his will to be done. You see, in heaven, when he says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God's will is done 100% of the time in heaven. There is no sin there. He is the center of the whole thing. And so there is no sin, there's no rebellion, there's no disobedience, so his will is always, always done. However, here on earth, there is still sin all around us. And so his will is not always done because there's disobedience, rebellion, and sin. And what Jesus is saying is ask that what reality is in heaven would become reality here as God's kingdom is advanced and therefore... His will will be done in our lives and all around us. All too often, when we pray, we pray for our will alone and forget that we're supposed to be praying that the Lord's will be done. There's a perfect example that we should follow. Jesus' model for how to pray. Do you remember when Jesus was praying the night before he was arrested? He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's in agony over what's about to take place. He knows he's about to die on the cross, and when he dies on the cross, he knows he's about to experience the full cup of God's wrath on his life because of the sins of the world that are on him. And as he prays, we see three times in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, that his prayer is, Father, would you allow this cup to pass from me? So he prays that what he would prefer would happen and that is may this cup pass from me but as soon as he says it he prays this in Matthew 26 39 nevertheless Jesus says nevertheless not as I will but as you will so my question is whenever we pray do we only share our will or do we have the attitude that Jesus has and that is father I I would prefer this like I would love to see this person be healed of this disease or predicament that they're in nevertheless father may your will be done and may you be glorified in the midst of it all we're to pray that his will be done I made reference a moment ago to uh, experiencing God and experiencing God last week we studied a guy by the name of George Mueller and perhaps you've heard this guy's name before or maybe you haven't but George Mueller lived in England he was a minister he was alive during the 19th century and he's a man known as being a man of prayer and he talks about the importance of us praying for the father's will to be done and not our own will and when he described how he does that and did that in his own prayer life here's what he wrote He's talking about prayer, and he says, I seek at the beginning of the prayer to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. When a person is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. And so what George Mueller said is, I am, when I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord to remove my will completely out of my brain because I know that if I can do that, if the Lord does that in my life, then I can more clearly see his will for the situation. So all of us are praying for lots of things right now. 
related to our church, related to our family, related to our friends, related to the world, related to what's going on in our country, related to finances, whatever your prayers are, are you praying that the Lord's will be done? So this whole section can be summarized with this. When we pray, we are to always pray God's will be done in our lives. Every time we pray. That should be the resonating thought. Lord, your will be done, not my will. So we see the first three petitions all relate to uh, divine petitions. And then now he transitions into our needs, right? So in the next verse, in verse 11, we have the next phrase on your outline. It says, give us this day our daily bread. I want us to see that this is more than just food. It's more than just bread. It's about provision in general and not just food. I was reading a commentary, and he said, did you notice he said, give us this day our daily bread? He doesn't say, give us this day our daily cake. I was like, I love that idea. All too often, we're praying not for our daily bread, but our daily cake. We're not praying for our daily need, but our daily greed. We're not praying for our daily need, but we're praying for our daily want. What Jesus is saying is focus our prayers on what we need. Whenever he prays this, it reminds me of the Israelites. Remember when the Israelites were wandering? They'd gotten out of captivity in Egypt. They're headed towards the promised land. They're going to be there for quite a while, for 40 years, right? They're grumbling and mumbling, and they're like, we don't have anything to eat. I've been there before. There's not a whole lot out there to eat from, and there's like a, a million or so Hebrews there, and they're like, what are we going to do? God says, i tell you what I'm going to do. Every morning when the dew comes and the dew dries up, you're going to find this bread, this substance called manna on the ground. And you're going to go out, and you're going to collect for that day, and then you're going to have everything you need for that day to eat, and then the next day it's going to be there again. Day after day after day. The only, uh, the only exception to that was that they were to collect the day before the Sabbath, two days worth, so they didn't have to pick up on the Sabbath. But the reality is this, that God provided their needs day after day after day after day. They weren't to try to take extra, because what happened if they took extra? It said that it would begin to stink and the worms would breed in it. Like, I don't want to eat that mess, right? The reality is God said, I'll give you enough for this day. God was teaching the Israelites to fully depend on him, that he is the one who provides. And then when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he reminds us that same principle. Whether it's food, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's job, whatever it is, rely on him. My question is, how are we doing? Are we living each day reminded that we must depend on him? Kind of the summary for this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, is this. When we pray, we're to pray for our needs and then trust God's provision. Whenever we pray, pray for our needs and then trust God's provision. Let's go to the next phrase. The next petition says, forgive us our debts 
as we have also forgiven our debtors. You're like, amen, i got a lot of debts, I want to get rid of them. Okay, let's hang on for a second. The debts here is not talking about financial debts. Rather, he uses this term in reference to our sin. In fact, there's another place where the model prayer is recorded, which is Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, the word debt is not used. The word sin is used. And so it's an interesting word that Jesus chooses on purpose to show us what sin does to our life. That sin causes great burden to us, just like a debt does. A debt is a picture of our position before God because of the sin that's in our life. You see, our debt is so great, we can't repay it. There's nothing we can do to pay off our sin debt. We're totally dependent on God's mercy. As a teenager, I grew up singing a song at church, which I'm not going to sing for you today, but maybe you've heard this phrase. It goes something like this, I owed a debt. I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's a picture of the gospel. The gospel news is this, that all of us, even though we are sinners destined to an eternity separated from God because of our sin, Scripture says that the wages or what we earn for our sin is death, D-E-A-T-H. We cannot pay anything with good works, good thoughts, good vibes, good prayers, good church attendance, good lineage. There's nothing we can do to pay off that debt. We deserve death because of our sin and eternal separation from God. But the good news is this, that the, eternal, that the free gift from God is eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ. You see, I deserve death to be separated from God, but Jesus sent, uh, God sent his son Jesus to walk on this earth. He did not sin. He did not owe that debt. He didn't deserve death, yet he willingly took that debt on himself so that he could die for us in our place. And then three days later, he was raised to life. My question is, what have you done about the sin debt in your life? Are you trying to resolve it on your own? Are you trying to be a good little person? Are you trying to join the church and therefore it makes you all right with God? Because none of that works. The only way our debt is removed is if we ask for our debt to be forgiven by what Jesus has done on our behalf. So this morning, would you ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust in him for salvation? I want to bring a couple of clarifying thoughts here. Repentance. There's a couple of ways that we experience repentance in our life. First and foremost is whenever I acknowledge that I am a sinner headed to hell, separated from God forever because of my sin, and I repent of that sin, ask God to forgive me of that sin, and begin to follow him, and I experience salvation, or what we refer to as justification, that I'm made right with God. But once I'm made right with God, then I have a desire to follow him and serve him and love him and obey him. But whenever sin creeps back into my life and I'm not following him like I should, I don't lose my position with the Father. I'm still all right with him. Like my salvation is secure, but I need to, because of my right standing with God, acknowledge sin for what it is and repent of my sin. Not because I need to repent and be forgiven in the sense of salvation day after day after day. Salvation, as it relates to conversion or justification, is a one-time thing, but it's a lifetime of growing to be more like Jesus. Last week we talked about it being called sanctification. So here's the deal. When Jesus says, forgive us our debts, he's saying, trusting in God for salvation, and then ongoing, whenever sin creeps into our lives, that we repent of that sin. I want to encourage you that whenever you pray for God to forgive you of your debts or your sins, don't simply do this. Oh, Father, 
forgive me of all my sins. Rather, would we take the time to acknowledge, Father, would you forgive me for lying just then? Father, would you forgive me for my temper? Father, would you forgive me for my greed? Would you forgive me for enlist that sin? Because there's an acknowledgement that it's sin specifically and not just generically that causes friction in our relationship with God. So I encourage you to repent of your sin. And then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus tells in, in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, there's a parable of a man who owes the king multiple lifetimes of, of, of money. Like, he's way in debt. Like, there's no way he can ever pay it off in one lifetime, right? And so the guy's getting ready to go to jail or to prison, and he pleads with the king that he'd be forgiven. And the king forgives him of his debt, wipes it clean, lets him go, and before he even gets to the house, he finds a guy that owes him money. Guess how much that guy owes him? About a day's worth of money. He immediately begins to choke the dude and say, give me my money. If you don't give it to me, I'm sending you to jail. The guy goes, I don't have it. Would you forgive me? Nope, you're going to jail. And he sends him to jail. The irony of a man who was just forgiven of a lifetime of debt who then freaks out about someone that owes him just a little bit of money. And the reality is we that are followers of Jesus have been forgiven of all of our sin and yet we withhold forgiveness from other people. It ought not be that way. He says whenever we see the great debt that has been forgiven of us, when we see our sins that are being forgiven, that we extend forgiveness to others in our life as well. So the summary point of this one, you may want to jot down. When we pray, we are to repent of sin and also ask God to help us show his grace by forgiving others. So we're to repent when we, when we pray, we're to repent of our sin and then ask God for us to demonstrate the same sort of grace to others in our lives by forgiving them as well. And then we get to the last petition. The last petition says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you're like, hold up. Like, God can't lead me to temptation, right? Like, he, he doesn't tempt me, correct? That is a correct statement. Like God's not going to tempt you because he can't cause you to sin. But rather, when it says, lead us not into temptation, what Jesus is saying is that we acknowledge that we need God's help lest we sin, lest we give in to temptation. We're to ask for God's help on how to avoid temptation, and then whenever we do face temptation, what we can do about it. I thought of a few different things that God puts in our lives that can help us to not be led into temptation but to be delivered from evil. And that is we can study our Bible, we can pray, we can make practical steps. Like I know if I do this, it's gonna to lead to that sin, so I'm gonna take these practical steps. I'm gonna have accountability in my life. I know that in my life I have a D group. There's three of our, us guys that get together on Monday mornings at McDonald's and we talk about life and hold each other accountable. There's this sense of community among other Christians. There's memorization of scripture. There's all kinds of ways that God can lead us in such a way that we're delivered from sin and from temptation. But what Jesus is saying is that when we pray, we ask for his help in this regard, and he begins to clarify to us how it is that he desires to help us to avoid temptation and evil. To not walk in the flesh, 
requires that we walk in the Spirit. What do I mean by that? If I walk in the flesh, that means I'm doing the things I want to do and I give in to temptation. But in order for me to be delivered from temptation, then I must walk in the Spirit. In other words, I must trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in my life because it's Him that keeps me from sinning. We can't do it on our own. We need God's help with this. Depending on your translation, Verse 13 might say, but deliver us from the evil one. In the ESV it says, but deliver us from evil. And the reason is, is because that word evil could be uh, used both ways. It could be evil in general, or it could be the evil one. I think it's more specifically the evil one talking about Satan. And so he says, in this sense, Jesus says, ask God to lead you not into temptation and to deliver you from Satan and his schemes against you. I want us to consider these words. I'm going to read them fairly quickly in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is to prevent the temptation and, and, and ev the evil one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given in the gospel, by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And he goes on from there. The reality is this, the only way that we're going to be led from temptation, away from temptation, delivered from evil, is if we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and the only way we can really rely on the Holy Spirit to work in our life is to seek his guidance through the study of his word and through prayer. And so Jesus in this scenario says that we are to ask him to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the summary of this section. When we pray... We're to ask God to help us walk in the Spirit. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, rather quickly, what the outline of the model prayer is all about. Here's what I want us to do now. In just a moment, the worship team will come up here. They'll lead us in a couple of songs to sing. And when they do that, some guys and some folks are going to be out there ready to pass some offering plates. If you came prepared to give financially, you can do that. If you've got a connection card, if you need to drop a membership card, whatever, in the plate, you can do that. And then we'll sing some songs. I'll be available at the front to pray with you. You can pray at the altar. You can pray at your seats. But I want us to take just a moment and spend some time in prayer. It could be the thing that our church is considering right now of, taking this vote in a couple of weeks. It could be something else going on in your life, but what is it that you're praying to seek the Lord about? And would you take just a moment to pray there at your seat and you utilize those six aspects of what it means to pray and therefore seek God's will to be done in that situation, trust him for his provision, knowing that he is our sovereign father who's above it all and he's more than capable and we need to hear his voice and then we need to step out in obedience, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done and that we would follow him more closely and that he would be glorified, glorified in the process. So I'm going to pray for us.
And I would encourage you in this time, be, be thinking through the things in your life that you're praying for, seeking his wisdom, and then you respond as God leads you this morning. Let's pray.